And so he went out like maybe two days later and came home with a fiddle, with a violin that he got in a pawn shop in Brooklyn and fixed it up himself, read, read a lot about, you know, violins and fiddles and being the master carpenter that he is. It wasn't, he didn't find it very difficult. He strung it up and he fixed it up and he repaired the holes and the seams that were open and there I, that was me. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. And in 2016, while performing and emceeing at the Wintergrass Music Festival in Bellevue, Washington, I had the distinct honor to meet fiddler and composer Winifred Horan, who was performing with the traditional Irish band Solace. We talked at length about her musical journey as both a classically trained violinist and an Irish folk fiddler and dancer. Here, then, is part one of that interview. And to help get us into the spirit, let's first listen to Winnie play one of her own compositions titled Lost Girl Found from her solo music CD of the same name.
my name is Winifred Horn, and I was born in uh, New York City, the, the Lower West Side of Manhattan, in 1964, in St. Vincent's Hospital, um, this, the daughter of Irish immigrants. My mom and dad emigrated to New York City in 1959 from Arklow, County Wicklow in Ireland. Interesting story on that. I say they both emigrated, but my father was actually born in New York um, years before that. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather, they were, uh, my father's people were um, uh, boat builders. And uh, my grandfather had been back and forth to New York working on the docks down on the Lower West Side. And it turns out that my grandmother had a heart condition and he brought her over to New York to be treated. And she ended up getting pregnant with my father and having to stay in the city. Uh, she, I guess it was a difficult pregnancy. And so my father was actually born in New York City, not by her choice, just by circumstance. And when she was well enough to travel after after dad was born and she had been treated for her heart condition, she went back to Ireland, and my father was raised in Ireland, and not a word or anything was uh, really spoken about him being born in New York until 18 years later, maybe, 19 years later, when a draft notice from the U.S. Army showed up in their town at the front door. My grandmother answered the door, and it was a like a telegram or a draft notice from the U.S. Army. And dad had been drafted. Yep. And so that would have been maybe 1958. And he was dating my mother at the time. Um, they were very young, you know, 18, 19 years old. And he had to go. He had to go over to the States, um, go back to the States. And he got over to the States and um, had to go into the Army. And he sent for my mother, and she came to the States, she came to New York, and they got married in St. Bernard's on the Lower West Side of Manhattan. And then Dad was, uh, a couple of months after they were married, Dad was shipped over to Okinawa for four years, um, right after Korea and right before Vietnam. So he didn't see active, didn't, didn't have active duty, but was in Okinawa for four years, left my mother in the city as a young bride. And uh, yeah, so that that's sort of the background to, you know, how my, my family, well, my mom and dad made it over. He spoke with quite a brogue, I would think. Or they Yeah, he did. They both did. They both still do, um, 50 years later. And was this uh, the area that they call Hell's Kitchen? This was... Uh, or lower? lower? Lower West Side of Manhattan, Chelsea. My um, grandfather was born and raised in Hell's Kitchen. Oh. I just did a lot of research and went there and did a lot of interviewing to just try to understand what that neighborhood was like at uh, well, 18, 1897, 1898, that period when he was just coming of age. Interesting. So was there was there music in the family? There was music in the family for sure. Um, the place where my, you know, my parents and my people come from in Ireland, um, as far back as we can go, is uh, the east coast of Ireland, Arklow, County Wicklow, which wouldn't really be a hotbed for traditional Irish music. There's uh, choir music and... Um, a lot of English. A lot of English, yeah. classical music, uh, choral music. Um, for that matter, dance bands, jazz... And so that greatly influenced my father. His family were back and forth to the States. As I said, they were um, boat builders and sort of in shipping. And they had they built massive, back in the 1800s, massive wooden sailboats. And uh, apparently they were, they were well off, but they uh, lost pretty much everything to, well, to Mother Nature and also to, I think, drinking. <laughs> um, and so the industry... They lost their business, but uh, that that it, it's in their blood. They're all carpenters and boat builders, master craftsmen. But back to the music. So, very musical family. My grandmother played concertina. My father 
played jazz trumpet. He picked him up. He picked it up himself. Someone brought a trumpet back from New York to him when he was a kid, and he 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 learned how to play trumpet by watching old movies and just listening to radio. You know, uh, and I've, I've were, interviewed a, an Irish fiddler uh, from Ireland, and he talked about how uh, he acquired this violin. He was brought back from New York. Yep. That the instruments were coming back yep. from the New World, as yep. it were. They were getting sent home with relatives, you know, gifts from gifts from the states that you'd never in a million years be able to afford back in Ireland, or even dream of buying. Um, sending back instruments, sending back shoes, sending back clothes. So yeah, so dad, um, dad played the trumpet as a teenager and got involved in the whole dance hall culture, and. Uh, and the dance halls were something the church got started, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was, a pa- it was sort of parish to parish, especially where they were from, you know, out the west of Ireland and where more of the hotbeds for traditional Irish music was also part of the parishes. And But where mom and dad were from, Irish traditional music really wasn't very popular. Um, it just wasn't. It just wasn't. Um, so... So but dad the church, actually the churches was was this a Catholic family? Yes. Oh yes. Oh, okay. oh yeah, Catholic family. Because yeah. Wicklow is also it's a lot of Protestant too, because that's where a lot of English settled. Absolutely. But um, yeah. I um, remember my mother growing up, and she went to a, a Catholic girls' college in New Jersey. And when they'd be dancing, the nuns would come over occasionally if they thought they were too close together, and uh, the nun would say, you know, push them apart and say, "There's got to be room for the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. <laughs> between." You. Oh my goodness! But these. Uh, these uh, dance halls really, if I understand, were established by the church as a way to kind of stop the house parties from going on and sort of unregulated yeah. uh, socializing, music making. Yeah, socializing publicly. Yeah. Really publicly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's what dad was doing. And then um, he eventually, to my grandmother's dismay and maybe disgust, got a gig playing with the circus. So he ran away and played with the circus around Ireland. So sort of an interesting, he did that for maybe a year and then came back home. And then all that time he was learning how to play piano to self-taught and maybe had a few private lessons in the town he grew up in. And um, he was extremely talented, very musical, and ended up getting a scholarship to study at the Royal Academy in England classical piano, but he turned it down. And this is before he got drafted? This is before he got drafted. So he turns that down. Yep. So turned it down and then continued playing the trumpet, and he was dating my mother, and they were getting very serious. And then, as I said, I can't remember, I think it was 1958, the draft notice came to— And your mother's family was a musical also? My mother's my mother was a dancer. She was a, a Irish dancer, they did have Irish traditional dancing and music. It, was, it just wasn't as um, popular or widespread as it would have been like out in Galway or Sligo or Donegal um, from she, where they were. She competed? Yes, she competed in what they call feshes um, mm-hmm. as a young girl. Her whole family, all her siblings danced, all the sisters danced. And so mom did that, but mom and dad met at one of these dances, dance hall, and dad was the trumpet player in the band and mom was extremely attracted to that and they they started dating when they were 15 i think she was 14 he was 15 16 maybe so and you came into the world because literally of music the attraction much. of music was the courtship pretty much yeah so yes. here you are playing music yeah so music plays a huge role in 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 the story here when when dad got back from his uh service in the u.s army from okinawa after four years he came back to New York, where him and mom picked up then and started their met their married life four years after they got married. And dad continued to, um, his desire to be a musician and play live was still very strong. And he played in jazz bands in Manhattan. And he played up in the Bronx. He played in, he formed, was part of a jazz band called the Blue Notes. And they played all over Manhattan, and he did that for a couple of years. And then we started coming along, the children started to come along, and 
I think it was just, I think he realized it was time that he needed to just really settle down and get a, I don't want to say the word because I was going to say a proper job, but he, a family uh, job. A family job, yeah. So he relied, he turned back to his um, carpentry. He was a, also a master carpenter and boat builder, as I said. So anyway, then he got a job on the docks, the Lower West Side of Manhattan, with a company called Gibbs and Cox, a very famous company back in the day, and it was a good job. And Mom got a job working with the New York Telephone Company. Did he ever have any dealings with the Moran family? No, I don't think so. They had all the tugboats. Remember the big M's on the tunnels? I don't. I know that if he did, he would have told us because he pretty much filled us in on everything from those days. So I don't think so. They were just friends of our family. Oh, no. Of all things, yeah. Yeah. No, I know some Morans, but... So So where are you in the birth order? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. So you were born what year? I was born in 1964. 64. Lower West Side of Manhattan. Mm Mm-hmm. The rest of the kids came along pretty soon after that, and they were living in the city. And then mom and dad decided that they didn't want to raise their kids in the city. It was too, I think, they just wanted the kids to have a backyard and fresher air and more room to run. And so they moved out to Rockaway Beach, New York, and bought a house in 1968, I think. Yes, it was 1968 on the beach block, 120th Street, Rockaway Beach, New York, about maybe 150 yards, 200 yards from the beach, from the ocean. And we grew up in that house, and they still live in that house. And that was sort of the, I think that acted as um, the catalyst, or it was a major turning point for my dad in how he wanted us to be exposed to and learn about our Irish culture. Really, it took, I think, for Dad to move out to Rockaway Beach, New York, which was pretty much 100% Irish at that time. They called it the Irish Riviera. And being in that community... I think made dad realize um, that he wanted his kids to learn and be exposed to Irish traditional music, Irish dancing, and and New York and Rockaway. Um, that it was a hotbed for that for Irish traditional music in the late '60s, early '70s, and Real, so real good players, really good players, yeah, top top flight. players. You had the likes of. Andy McGann, mm-hmm. Martin Mulvihill, Patty Reynolds. These are all fiddle players. Johnny Cronin. I mean, these are names from my childhood. Uh, my father introduced me to them. As I said, Dad was a jazz musician and a pianist, but he was also a carpenter, and his his love of wood and woodworking and music, I think, and then being exposed to the Irish community, the tight-knit Irish community in Rockaway, and wanting his kids to know about where we came from culturally. He uh, sent us to Irish music lessons and Irish dancing lessons, and we had ha- we were having piano lessons in the house, not, not traditional Irish music lessons, but he asked me, what would I like to play? And... I said the violin for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why. I had been taking piano lessons from my father. And so he went out like maybe two days later and came home with a fiddle, with a violin that he got in a pawn shop in Brooklyn and fixed it up himself. Read, read a lot about, you know, violins and fiddles and being the master carpenter that he is. It wasn't, he didn't find it very difficult. He strung it up and he fixed it up and he repaired the holes and the seams that were open. And there I, that was me. And sent me to my first couple of fiddle lessons in Brooklyn. Brought me to my first couple of fiddle lessons with a a woman by the name of Maureen Glenn. And she had a music school, Irish music school in Brooklyn. And that was, that was me and my siblings for the next couple of years. We talked earlier about this 
sort of difference between traditional Irish music versus the classical music mm-hmm. world. So how did that play out then in terms of where where you were being steered and where you were steering yeah. yourself? I So I'd say I was about eight, seven or eight, when we started, when my father um, gave us traditional Irish fiddle lessons, music lessons. We played in Kelly bands went, went once a week, um, played in all the feshes and the flacules and Irish dancing lessons at the same time. And explain how big a Kelly band could be. Um, somebody doesn't, or what would... Oh, a Kelly band. So it would consist usually of um, three fiddles, maybe an accordion, two tin whistles, um, and, and a snare drum. And that was it. Maybe three fiddles, two accordions. I'm, I'm missing something. A couple of tin whistles, maybe. Yeah. And so we, we did that for a few years. And then my father, being my father, uh, started to think about it and wanted us to have uh, formal training, classical lessons. And there was a woman, a woman from Germany, a German woman living in our neighborhood in Rockaway, who had a really great reputation and a home school. She was teaching privately in the neighborhood and dad had dad found out about her. Her name was Irmgard Upelniks and dad brought us to her house which was about 10 blocks from where our house was. And that was that was the turning point for me then I got and how different was her house I used to take piano lessons from Mrs. Monvale and it was like going into a house that smelled different Mm -hmm. and everything was different about it what what was her place like oh as a little kid oh god I I actually when you said that I just it it sort of opens up a box of memories because it was so different from my Irish Catholic sort of carpenter's humble house. And Mrs. Upelniks lived what we called like uptown. And I remember, you know, riding my bicycle up to take my lesson, steering the bicycle with one hand with my fiddle in, in one hand, like, or, and, and getting to this big yellow, massive house with like a widow's peak and massive wraparound porch, just, just the size of it was overwhelming. And I remember the instructions were that we came through the side door. All the students would go through the side door. You didn't go through the front door, went through the side door. And I remember the first time I walked in, I was just blown away by how polished everything seemed. You know, the hardwood floors were all like really polished and the varnish was beautiful. And the like, the, the, the staircases were you know, original staircases with the gorgeous banisters. And I remember being sort of really blown away by it and, and her German accent and and meeting her husband who was from Albania. And he was an artist, a really famous artist, and I have to try to remember his name. Eupelniks, um, obviously, was his last name, but he was a famous artist, and his paintings were all over the house, and they were it was like a museum. Um, and the where we took the lessons was in this big room with a gorgeous like oriental rug and a grand piano and it was just really formal and and proper music stands and it just yeah I can I can see it like and I can smell it I can smell like the manuscripts and the it, it's yeah and 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 the paintings and everything it was and the the smell of the piano and yeah it's really and what about her violin um yeah that's an interesting story uh she her her violin was actually smuggled out of germany she was um she was actually uh in a concentration camp because i remember after I got to know her very well, um, a couple of years into this relationship, um, she turned out to be probably one of my most influential teachers. I remember one time at a lesson, she was wearing a, a blouse that was shorter than normal, and I and I saw um, I saw numbers on her 
her left hand, her finger hand, fiddle, her violin finger hand, not her bow hands. And I, and I saw these like, um, sort of like blue green numbers, like maybe five or six of on them. On her forearm. On, the on her forearm, of- on the inside of her forearm. Oh, man. And I must have been about maybe 12 at this point. I was probably with her for a couple of years and we had got, I, I felt way more comfortable than I did when I first got there. Um, and I asked her what the, what, I think she, she realized that I had seen it. She was trying to explain something to me about the way I was holding my instrument. She wanted my wrist to be straighter. And when she was demonstrating, I saw these numbers and I, she, she knew that I saw them. And um, I didn't even have to ask her. She said to me, oh, let's talk about this. And she told me that she had been in a um, concentration camp during World War II. And uh, she didn't really go into much detail about it that time. But then the, the, the more my family got to know her family, um, my father and her husband got to be very close because dad was sort of um, very interested in everything. And he was, you know, he got close to Mr. Yupelnix and was asking about their family history and about the whole, how they got out of Eastern Europe at the, at the time and about his art and about, and you asked about her violin. They smuggled her violin out. And I can't remember the exact details about their uh, escape. She did obviously survive the concentration camp and made it to the States. Mm. And they had two children, um, Anita and... Anita was a classical pianist, and her son, can't remember his name, but he was a classical violinist, and the kids, her kids went to the Manhattan School of Music in New York, and I remember feeling that that was really something very impressive, because it was a really long commute from Rockaway into Manhattan on the A train, and not a lot of the kids that I grew up with did that, but her kids did, and I remember thinking that that was pretty interesting, and anyway, but yeah. So, so those 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 lessons with Mrs. Yupelnix on on the violin was all about, um, you know, technique and learning the learning the technique and the rudiments of 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 violin playing according to a really experienced German violinist. But you and you were learning that repertoire. And learning the repertoire, yeah. Which would be Bach and... All of that. Handel, Haydn, Vivaldi. All of it. And what um, was happening to the Irish music at this point? Oh, oh, really interesting. Um, a battle, because it was the time when... It's the first time I can remember this argument that folk music or traditional musics and classical music have to be separated or cannot live together. That's how I describe it now. As a kid, I didn't really understand. As a kid, I was just listening to my teachers and my father, um, overhearing conversations that they were having, saying it's really not a good idea for her to continue the fiddling because it's going to get in the way of her classical technique. That's pretty so, much it. So there were all kinds of signals. I mean, subtle signals and not so subtle signals that that the separation yeah. was occurring, and you were you were going to go someplace else, just yes. like going into her house. You Absolutely. were going into a new world. Absolutely. And this was the promise of that. Yeah, and I remember feeling torn about it because my social life with the with my fiddling friends and my traditional music friends. That's what it was. It was really social. And as a 12, 13-year-old girl, I, I wanted to be social. But um, it came to a point then at that age, 13, 14, um, a prominent doctor in the neighborhood that we grew up in, his children were also taking lessons from Mrs. Upelnix. And there was a scholarship audition taking place in Manhattan uh, for a prep school. The Manis School of Music was offering 
a four-year scholarship for prep school-age students, which meant high school-age students from ninth grade to senior year. I was getting ready to go to high school at this stage. I, I ended up going to an all-girls Catholic high school in Rockaway, but my father got wind of this audition, and the company that was giving away this massive scholarship for four years was General Mills. And they were putting on this audition. And so my dad and Mrs. Upelnix found out about it from this parent of another student. And they thought it was a good idea for me to audition. They thought that I would maybe have a chance. And I did. And, and I auditioned. And that was my first experience with the process of auditioning, like in the classical world. Which is not necessarily a pleasant experience. No, I uh, even talking about it, I'm feeling like butterflies or something, or like getting a little, my nerves are a little on end. But so I did. I remember the draw. I remember preparing. I remember getting the uh, paperwork of what was required for this audition, and we had to have like a movement of a Bach partita. Um, we had to prepare like two flesh scales. Uh, what, what else? Did the Carl Flesch system is uh, basically scales and arpeggios just to train you. Um, position work, first position, third position, fifth position, arpeggios. It's basically the uh, bedrock, I guess. So yeah, there was, there was repertoire that needed to be prepared, and I did with the help of my teacher. And um, my dad drove me into the audition, and there were loads of kids and I remember being overwhelmed by it, but I did the audition and I was nervous. And maybe about a month later, we got a letter in the mail. And it said that I had um, won the scholarship. And it was for four years or five years. But it meant that every Saturday for all of my high school years, it was a weekend. It wasn't, I was already in high school. This was a, an extra, this was a music school prep school that just took place on the weekends, five years. So I did it, and it was that was pretty much my, my high school years, was Catholic high school during the week, and then every Saturday morning at 6 a.m., my mom would take me in on the train. To, and you to, were practicing how many hours a day? Um, it depended. It depended on whether my father was home or not. Dad was pretty much very, um, he became very heavy-handed as time went on as, and as the classical music became more a part of what we were doing. Very, very disciplined about it. And yeah. Um, and then obviously, yeah, so to answer your question, sometimes I'd be practicing five, six, seven hours a day as a, as a, as a teenager. Weekends in the summer, maybe longer. Not the fondest memories. Is your dad still alive? Yes. And uh, do you think he really saw this as a way, like at a deeper level of the Irish sort of being able to get a, make it up the ladder, the social ladder, and no. be accepted uh, in that? I, I honestly think that that had nothing to do with it. I truly believe my father's... It, the one thing he's definitely not is a social climber, quite the opposite. Like, uh, but I think truly, as a musician and an artist himself, he thought it was the foundation that I'm not saying this f for everybody, but he truly believed that it was the foundation that would make me a better musician, all around musician to have the technique and to, to know in to you know in his mind to know my instrument from top to bottom and 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 be exposed be exposed to that repertoire be exposed to the classics just like how he treated our our education we may not have been getting exposed to what he thought we should have been getting exposed to in the catholic school system in new york so after school, we read the classics with Dad. We had what was called prescribed reading. We had what was called prescribed listening. Technically, I think I was probably also homeschooled on top of all of this. Um, 
his vision of what a full education, that's really what it was about. It wasn't about, you know, social status or I think he really just wanted us to be the best equipped we could be and stand a chance. It just so happens that, you know, <laughs> if if that had been in the world of law or medicine, our jobs would have been more secure. My job would have been more secure. But he's an idealist and a romantic, so I don't think he was truly just thinking about arts and how important that is in, in a child's education. Yeah. And I really respect him for that, even though as a teenage girl, I completely resented this like strong strong arming like you know where was your mom and all that mom was pretty much holding the family together you know all the kids played everyone played violin everyone played piano everyone danced yeah mom was just she was just holding it all together so you're at manish you you have passed this uh audition in fact mm-hmm. you've been awarded this scholarship probably at this point your teacher's saying to you you need a a good, decent violin. What what happened there? Well, like I said before, Dad Dad fancied himself as a, a violin fixer. And so he, he went on a mission all, all these years I'm telling you about. He was looking around in pawn shops in New York and buying broken instruments or secondhand um, instruments and taking them home and working on them, taking them apart, rebuilding them. He even started then to build his own. And um, it wasn't really that point. I, I, I think my instruments were, my the violin that I was playing was fine enough for where I was at. It wasn't until I got into college when I started auditioning for conservatories after the, after, after the prep school. That, that 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 became an issue after after Manus when it came time when I was graduating high school and and getting ready to take the SATs in the back of my mind I I I was one of those kids who was like well I don't need the SATs because I'm going to be a musician all I have to do is audition now for music schools and or and conservatories and that was my plan and I really did love I really did want to be you know um, Top player. Yeah. Did you have that but, competitive? Uh, no. <laughs> no, not that. No, I just I no, I didn't at all. That's that that comes later. The 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 meltdown and the nerves. But when I was at the prep school, I have to say, I, my most influential teacher. That's where I met him, and he was a Russian violinist, a man by the name of Leary Slutsky who had another really interesting story about getting out of getting out of Russia um, in 1978 or 79 with his family and they emigrated to New York. He was a really well-known uh, Russian violinist back there. And um, he was on the faculty at Manus as were a few other Russian musicians who had all sort of escaped at the same time. It was a really interesting little uh, situation. The Davidovich sisters were there, Bella Davidovich and Ala Davidovich, amazing classical pianists were on the faculty there. And uh, so I found myself in this like little Russian world at, at, at Manus. And he, he was by far my favorite and most influential teacher as far as playing the violin. And I remember when I auditioned for his his class and I found out that he accepted me into his studio. I was only 14 at the time. I remember being really frightened when I was going for my first lesson because I had heard all these, you know, stories about how tough he was and he was Russian and the Russian school of violin playing, which I was really interested in. I was a huge fan of like David Oistrakh and all of those old school Russian violinists for some reason. I don't know. Um, and when I, the first time I went for a lesson with Mr. Slutsky, I walked into his classroom and he was sitting there. Um, remember, he had just gotten to the United States like maybe a year before this. And he was sitting, he was a small man. He was maybe five five, five four, 
and he was sitting in a chair with his violin out on a desk, and he was drinking a Heineken and eating a banana. And immediately, like, I was like, okay, this is going to be all right. He he, he seems, this is going to be cool. He's drinking a Heineken at two o'clock in the afternoon, and he's eating a banana, and he's wearing a leather jacket. He's he's trying really hard to, like, get this whole American thing. You know, as a 14-year-old, that's the first thing I thought. And then we hit it off really well. I played for him. He said to me, he said, we're just going to start. He said, just play for me. What do you have to play for me? And I had one of my favorite pieces at the time was a um, a Fritz Chrysler piece. I don't know. Um, it was a piece called Liebeschleid. It was like a little love piece. And uh, I played it for him. And when I finished, he said, okay, so the only the only thing we need to talk about is now your emotion and expression. He said, we'll get to all the technique stuff after, but he said, I want you to play this piece like, um, think of cotton candy. He was using all these really gorgeous, because his English was not so great yet. And so his, his descriptions of how he wanted me to play, I, that sticks in my mind of like, just how, how to express yourself. It wasn't, he wasn't talking about like technique. He was talking about emotion and that stuck with me. That's, I don't know. But um, of course, he. we worked on technique too. But um, So I was with him for five years and then um, really powerful influence on me. And then it came time for college and I auditioned for conservatories and I got into the New England Conservatory in Boston. I was living in New York with my parents still. And the main reason I wanted to go to Boston was to... Uh, get away from home, go to Boston, be far enough away from home that I had some freedom and independence. And also there was a, a really great teacher there that I wanted to study with, a woman by the name of Masako Ushioda. She was a Japanese violinist. So it kind of ticked all the boxes. It was Boston. It was far enough away from home. Masako was on the faculty. I got accepted. And you know, Boston's a great town and for Boston's young people. And Boston's a great town, exactly. Yeah, for young people, it really is. And it just felt more like going to college if I was going to go away rather than staying home and going to school in New York. And there's quite a Irish music scene in Boston. Yeah. Um, but at this time, when I went to Boston to the conservatory, New England Conservatory, I was completely disconnected from my fiddling roots my Irish music and my traditional Irish music and dancing, traditional Irish dancing, I was completely disconnected from it because for the last 10 years, I guess at that stage, no, maybe not that long, maybe about seven years, I hadn't played fiddle music at all because of what I told you before, this this argument that at the time I didn't believe, but I, I had to sort of listen to my classical teachers that if I wanted to have good classical habits and a good classical technique, that's what I needed to focus on. So then what happens? So funny enough, though, when I got to the conservatory and was auditioning for Masako's class, I really wanted to be in her studio. I played... um, I played a Bach partita, a movement from a Bach partita, a jig movement. And believe it or not, she said to me afterwards that the reason she accepted me into her studio was because I played the jig like the way a jig was supposed to be played. Uh. And I can only think that it was because of my, you know, background from when I was a little girl or from my connection to traditional fiddling that I felt a jig in me and I I didn't even though I was reading off the page it was a Bach partita and it was really serious it was a jig so I was playing it like a jig and she said that it was really interesting to her that I was she didn't use the the phrase swinging it differently but I know that's what she meant the phrasing wasn't typical of a partita or of a violinist playing a partita it, it, I guess I guess what I'm what I think she must have been referring to was that I was playing it like a jig 
I find three time and four time fundamentally different. It's almost yeah. part of your your nature. Yes, exactly. And I struggle. I still play. I play jigs, mm-hmm. but I don't know as if I really, really play a jig the way a jig should be played. I yeah. Mean, I'll play one for you sometime. You can tell me what you think. Okay. I've struggled to get three time. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, with what Sullis does, uh, all all of our backgrounds are traditional Irish music, and jigs obviously are a huge part of that. When we um, play at festivals over here in the states that aren't Irish, say bluegrass festivals. Or old timey festivals, or and and when in a lot of cases we're like the only Irish ensemble at these bluegrass festivals, or you know, to sometimes sometimes there's others, but we find we find that we're kind of alone. And when we play jigs on our concert sets, the audience reacts differently because it's not such a common thing. Jigs are not as common as they are in, in, in traditional Irish circles or in, in, the, in, the, in our music. Yet often people will play a jig, and one way or another, they square it around to be yeah, four time. Right. <laughs> They're playing a jig, but it sounds like a real. Right, so that yeah. kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like that um, yeah. whenever we play jigs at, at festivals like that, when we're outside of our traditional Irish bubble or circle, the reaction is, is so much different because it's not something that they're used to hearing, I think. Let's now end part one of my interview with Winifred Horan by listening to her play The Balagar Jigs from her music CD Serenade with fellow Solace band member Mick McCauley.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To listen to additional podcasts and to learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Thank you.